It is an absolute delight to look out here and to see so many faces, so many people gathered together on this Lord's Day that we might celebrate together the greatest event in human history. Indeed, the greatest event in the history of creation, that the very Son of God, who came and died to redeem a rebellious people, burst the bonds of death, conquered the tyranny of sin, and then offers through faith in him and his resurrection life everlasting to any and all who will receive such a wonderful gift. Beloved, the resurrection or Easter is the signature event of the Christian faith. It is what sets Christianity apart from any and all pretenders. Christ has risen and he lives forevermore and offers himself to all who will draw near in faith. The world recognizes, the devil recognizes the significance of the resurrection. And thus it has been the focal point of attack since the very beginning. For nearly 2,000 years, the enemies of Christ have sought to discredit the reality of his resurrection. There have been various theories or explanations put forth trying to undo the truth. They're silly in each and every sense. And yet people in their rebellion and sinful hearts will cling to anything rather than the truth. A common explanation perhaps you have heard is called the swoon theory. The swoon theory. And basically what this theory puts forth is that Christ did not die on Calvary's cross on Friday. But he merely fainted because of loss of blood and, and the difficulties, the exertions of his crucifixion. The theory goes on to say that there in the cool uh, environment of the tomb, he was resuscitated. And then made his way out from that tomb to put forth the illusion, the lie, that he had conquered death. What an absolute distortion of reality. Jesus Christ was beaten. He was crucified. He spent six hours on a Roman cross The scripture records that he gave up his spirit. He surrendered his spirit when the sacrifice was complete. A Roman soldier drove a lance through his heart to verify that he was dead. A man who had merely swooned would not wriggle his way out of his grave clothes, leaving them perfectly folded and in position where they had wrapped his body once. A man who had merely swooned would not have the strength or ability to roll back that massive stone that sealed the grave. 
A man who had merely swooned would not overpower his Roman guard and elude them. A man who merely swooned would not inspire much confidence among his frightened disciples. The word of God is exceedingly clear. Mark chapter 15 and beginning in verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. Indeed, after six hours, it was unusual. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Listen, a centurion given charge of a crucifixion detail would know one thing and one thing for sure. And that's when a man was dead. Others put forth the age-old lie that the disciples came and stole the body. That lie originated with the Jewish leadership. Matthew's gospel records for us in chapter 28. They offered a large bribe to the Roman soldiers to fabricate this lie and promised that when they would become uh, uh, having to give their life for the life of that person who had escaped their charge, that the Jewish leadership would intervene on their behalf with Pilate and rescue them. It's ridiculous. Others put forth the notion there's a mass hallucin, uh, excuse me, a, a hallucination had happened. That is, that everyone thought they saw a resurrected Christ. Nonsense. The record is very clear. The disciples believed against their will. They were not predisposed to believe that Christ had risen from the dead, anything but. He appeared to individuals. He appeared to a group of over 500. He appeared multiple times in multiple places. The notion that it's a mass hallucination is ridiculous. Others boldly assert the women visited the wrong tomb in the early hours of Sunday morning. They stumbled across an empty tomb, assumed it to be Jesus, and thus began to proclaim the pernicious nonsense that he rose from the dead. That is absurd. One would have to assume that Peter and John made the same mistake. Furthermore, one would have to assume that the Jewish leadership, who wanted nothing more than to prove he was still in the grave, could simply go to the right tomb and say, you silly people, here he is. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. There is no other fact in reality that is more certain than that. The word of God is replete with proofs of the resurrection. I invite you to turn to Luke's gospel in chapter 24 and the account of the empty tomb and listen to the eyewitness account. Luke chapter 24 and beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. The empty tomb stands for all time as unimpeachable evidence for the resurrection 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the transformation of this frightened group of disciples is a proof of the resurrection that defies any other explanation. These men were terrified. When Jesus was crucified, they scattered. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. They ran for their lives. They hid. They were deathly afraid the authorities would come for them too. And yet, following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they became emboldened in a way that they turned the Roman Empire right side up. Right side up. Acts chapter 4. And beginning in verse 5 is but a snippet of the transformation that overcame these men. A transformation that is unexplainable in any other way than that Jesus is alive and has appeared to them and has empowered them to proclaim that reality. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. Listen, this was the very pinnacle of the leadership of the nation. These men were intimidating. And there before them, when they had placed them, that is Peter and John in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He, that is Christ, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is an incredible transformation. That is speaking truth to power. And it is done only by an assurance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the empowerment of the Spirit of God whom Jesus himself sent at Pentecost. There is further evidence of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is simply this. It is the apostolic preaching. Their message was a message of resurrection. Every time they opened their mouth, they ended not with the cross, they ended with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his lordship and a call to submit and to surrender oneself to that lordship. For it is the only way one can be forgiven of their sin. It dominated their preaching. It was not incidental. It was central to the preaching message of the apostles in the early church. That is unexplainable if it is based on an illusion, if it is based on a fabrication, if it is based on a lie. Beyond that, the scriptures of the Old Testament predicted the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God's word cannot fail. The prophets had long foreseen such a truth, and those who have eyes to see and ears to hear would have recognized that reality. It is the fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament that evidence the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Beyond that, Jesus himself predicted his own resurrection. What that means is that the resurrection was not a fabrication of the disciples following his death. They were merely speaking of that which Jesus himself in his life had once predicted. He said that though a kernel of grain fall into the dirt, it will rise again. And he is speaking of himself that if this temple is destroyed in three days, he will raise it up. He is speaking of his own body. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. He predicted his own resurrection. Had he not been raised from the dead, it would completely undo the entire message of his life. He would be a fool or a charlatan. Jesus himself predicted his own resurrection. And finally, it is the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. He appeared to witnesses, not once, not twice, multiple times to both individuals and groups in many different locations and places. He himself appeared and, and, and appeared in the flesh to them. Beloved, Christianity rises and falls on the certainty of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus be not raised, then let's close the doors, turn out the lights, and everyone go home. And so this morning, what I want to do with you is I want to briefly look with you at three horrific consequences if Easter had never happened. Three horrific consequences if Easter had never happened. Turn in your personal copy of the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul wrote to this church in Corinth, a church which he himself had planted and founded. Paul himself is in the city of Ephesus in Turkey at the time he writes this letter. He writes back to this church, this church that was so near and dear to his heart and yet had broken his heart in so many ways. This church was eminently gifted, and yet this church was entirely messed up. This church was invaded by many different problems and heresies, one of which that was central to their problems was a denial of the bodily resurrection. They become infected with Greek philosophy. And therefore, they had somehow concluded that the resurrection was merely a spiritual reality. That is, that the body was not to come to life again. The body was not to be put back into a glorified state to be reordered that, that body and soul, one would live in the presence of the Lord. They denied that wonderful reality. And so the Apostle Paul writes to them. He writes here in chapter 15, of 1 Corinthians, the longest chapter of this entire letter, and he writes this chapter to address this most important topic. I take up the reading in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I have preached to you, 
unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But if we have hoped in Christ in this life only... We are of all men most to be pitied. I want to focus our attention this morning on verses 17, 18, and 19. Three horrific consequences if Easter never happened. Number one, verse 17. Sin still rules. Sin still rules rules. Beloved, we were created to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. We were also designed to love our neighbor as ourselves. And yet, as you and I both know all too well, we fall incredibly short of this mark. The Bible calls that dreadful reality Sin. Sin. When Adam defied God and took of the forbidden fruit and ate, he plunged both himself and his posterity into the nightmare called sin. We are born, each and every one of us, born alienated from our creator, alienated from each other, by nature, and by choice, we are possessed of the most horrific thoughts and deeds. As we grow from childhood, we seek to find satisfaction. We seek to find diversion in a multitude of activities and relationships. But in the end, we remain empty inside, guilty Unable and unwilling 
to fix that which is broken. We are in bondage to sin. Bondage to sin. In this fallen state of rebellion, we deserve the wrath of Almighty God. We deserve His eternal condemnation. But God did not abandon us. In His great mercy, God did not abandon His creation. Instead, He became our deliverer. He sent His own Son into the world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus lived the perfect life that we cannot. He always loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He always loved his neighbor as himself. His delight was in the law of the Lord. And then he went to Calvary's cross as our substitute. He took upon himself the the guilt for the stored up transgressions of his people. Past, present, future. He took them to that tree and died the horrific death that I deserve. That you deserve. But the good news of Easter, beloved, is that he is innocent. He is innocent, and because he is innocent, death could not hold him. And three days later, he he bursts the bonds of death and rose and lives forevermore. Jesus is risen from the dead. Look behind me. The tomb is empty. He is risen from the dead. Declared by the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, this resurrected Jesus has all authority and willingly shares with all who will come to him the very life of God within their own soul. He suits his people by faith union with him to live forever in the presence of God Almighty. His invitation is simple. Will you turn from your sin and receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith? Beloved, this is the message of Easter. This is why we gather. This is the message that those early disciples proclaimed and turned the world right side up. And it continues to this very day. It rescues men and women and boys and girls from darkness. But what if it had never happened? What if it had never happened? Verse 17, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Worthless. Futile. Fruitless. Ineffectual. Useless. Unable to secure forgiveness. Why? Why is that true? Because you are still in your sins. Listen, if Jesus 
were still in the grave, he would be unable to save anybody. Anybody. We would have no hope that his substitutionary death was satisfied the Father. No hope whatsoever that our sin had been paid for. No assurance at all that this deadly enemy had been conquered. But because God raised him from the dead, we have that assurance that the payment has been made, that the debt has been satisfied, that the Father is pleased. Pleased. Beloved, this payment by Christ, it secures our forgiveness not just eternally, not just someday. It secures our deliverance from sin in the here and now. In the here and now. Jesus has broken the power of sin. For those that are his by faith, we are no longer in bondage to sin. It is no longer the cruel taskmaster that must rule over us. We, by the power of the indwelling spirit of Christ, have now the ability, the authority, and the desire to live a life pleasing to God. Paul himself speaks this way to the Corinthian believers in chapter 6. And beginning in verse 9, he says, And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. How terrible! What an awful reality! Were it not for this next verse. But such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul says to those people, you were trapped in the most horrific lifestyle of sin. No hope for the kingdom of God, facing only certain judgment. And yet, by the power of the living Christ, you've been changed. What is true of them, beloved, is true of all his people. By the power of the living Christ, we who are his by faith, the very children of God, the power of sin has been broken. That's who we once were, not who we now are. Not who we now are. If Christ be not raised, then the power of sin still rules. And we remain captive to our own evil thoughts. And the resulting deeds and words which condemn us if christ be not raised your sin remains you are still in your sin paul says secondly the second horrific consequence if christ be not raised is that judgment awaits verse 18 The result of sin is judgment. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Have perished. Fallen asleep. It's a a euphemism. It's an expression. It refers to those who have died as followers of Christ. 
We use an expression often in our culture that a person has passed away. It passed away. Fallen asleep is the same kind of expression. Listen, beloved, few things are more characteristic of early Christianity than the way it changed the view that people had about death. It changed how people understood death. For the pagans of that day, death was the end of all things. It was their adversary. It was that which would defeat all men, noble and ignoble alike, the brilliant and the simple, the wealthy and the poor. None could escape its grip. It was the adversary. It was that which people feared. But for the Christian... Death has been transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death now for the Christian is no more than sleep. It is no more than sleep. Why? Why is that true? How can that be true? Paul gives us the answer here in verse 55. It's because Christ has removed the sting of death for his people. Verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus conquered sin and death for us, and thus death is no longer that which terrifies the people of God. Jesus took upon himself the divine judgment that waits everyone when they die. There is an appointment, the scripture tells us, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Jesus stood in our place and took the judgment for us. Therefore, the apostle Paul could speak of his own death in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21 as gain. He could speak of his desire to depart this life with the certain knowledge that he would be with Christ, Philippians 1.23. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he says. Confident in this knowledge, the followers of Jesus Christ, when they died, those that left behind and remained were not to mourn like those without hope. For they had a living hope. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But if Christ has not been raised, then those who have died trusting in Christ, who have paid the penalty for their sin, are in for a ghastly surprise. A ghastly surprise. Upon their death, instead of being ushered into the presence of God to enjoy the rest that has been promised to them, they are instead find themselves alienated from God, separated from his kindness, ultimately consigned forever to a place called the lake of fire, prepared by God for his greatest enemy, the devil and his angels. What a cruel joke. What a dreadful reality. They have perished. They have perished. Perish does not mean passed out of existence. Perished means eternally lost. Jesus came into the world for God sent his own son into the world 
that whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If Christ be still in the tomb, judgment awaits. Third, sin still rules, judgment awaits. Third, life is futile. Life is futile. Verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. The construction here in the original language, it speaks of those who hope in Christ in this life as as those who are steadfast in their hope in Christ. We would call them hopers. Hopers. Not a passing hope, not a wish, not a gee, I hope it's true. A rock solid, soul stabilizing reality that Jesus has risen. And in this, I place all my confidence and trust. All. But notice what Paul says here. He says, if that is your life and yet it is good for this life only. That is it. If there is no reality beyond it. If it is merely an illusion of this life, no matter how passionately one holds it. In the end, you are most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. If we spend our whole life characterized as a hoper in Christ... And then in the end, find out it's too late. Our hope was misplaced. What a dreadful reality that is. Paul is drawing a contrast here between those who have li- are living their life by faith only and those who are living their life by faith in the reality that the tomb is empty and Christ is alive. And the difference is night and day. Those who build their life around a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and the certainty of his resurrection are called Christians. They are called Christians. For the unbeliever, there is no hope beyond this life. If you sit here this morning and Christ is is not your all and all, if he is just merely a passing notion to you, a loose attachment, a nod of the head, a tip of the cap, then all you've got is this life. That's all you have. And you should seek to get as much out of it as you can. But let me promise you this. It can never deliver the deep down soul satisfaction that God, your creator, has built into your soul. The hole will never be filled. There's not enough pleasures, there's not enough treasures, there's not enough experiences, there's not enough relationships in this life that one could possibly accumulate to fill that which only God can fill. There was resurrected Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you are a follower of Christ this morning, if you are a Christian, then your entire hope lies not here and now. 
Your hope lies in the future that is in the restoration of all things at the return of Christ. You are an alien. You are a stranger. You are passing through this life. Yes, there are things in this life that are delightful and enjoyable to be sure, and it is, a, it is part of the providence and kind mercy of God. But this life is loaded with pain. This life is loaded with disappointment. This life is loaded with heartache. You can never find outside of Christ. But if Christ be not raised... A life lived in hope on him, a life lived in dependence upon him, will vanish like a vapor. Like the fog over a cup of coffee. What a horrible reality to to wake up on the other side and realize you committed yourself to a lie. What a cruel illusion. What a cruel illusion. If there is no reality to the resurrection of Christ. Why? Because following Christ requires sacrifice. Let me say it again. Following the Lord Jesus Christ requires sacrifice. One cannot retain their grip on this world and add Christ to it. Paul himself understood that terrible reality in verse 32 he says if from human motives i fought with wild beasts at ephesus what does it profit me if the dead are not raised let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die listen to follow the lord jesus christ is to make sacrifices real sacrifices painful sacrifices possibly up to and including your own life there is a weightiness to this We cannot add Jesus Christ to a pantheon of gods. We cannot band-aid him on to our already good American life. Jesus is not a life insurance policy. Jesus is not a fire insurance policy. Jesus is the risen Lord, the Savior. And we must bow the knee. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They will be persecuted. You understand this? This is a weighty decision. A weighty decision. Listen, if Christ is still in the grave, don't live your life for a lie. Do not live your life for a lie. Do not be deluded. Do not be pitied. If you set your hope on Christ and he's still in the grave, then all your hope, all the hardships that you suffer, all the denial of earthly pleasures, what a waste. But if Christ be risen, it is a simple decision to make. Jesus calls to us in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. It's that deadly serious. It is that deadly serious. Choose this day who you will follow. If Christ be risen, follow him. If Christ be still in the tomb, 
Get up, walk out, chase it as best you can, and get what you get. You cannot have both. But blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, the bottom line is this. A Christian has no Savior but Christ. A Christian has no Lord but Christ. A Christian has no hope but Christ. A Christian has no purpose but Christ. If Christ be not alive, then the entire thing is a tragic, pathetic mockery. But if Jesus be risen from the dead, then he is eminently qualified to be our Lord and Savior. And to demand our ultimate, undivided devotion. If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. But Paul doesn't end there. We are not to be pitied. If you have committed yourself to Christ this morning, you are not to be pitied. Not at all. Verse 20, now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Christ has been raised. To the glory of God the Father. Paul says he's the first fruits here. What he means is simply this, that Christ is the first in a long line who will follow. Jesus has pioneered the way. He has conquered death. And those who today, by faith, are his, are assured of that same reality. We are the children of God. We are the children of God. Beloved, if you desire, if you're here this morning, And you desire to be a follower of Christ. Listen to these words. Perhaps you've been thinking about this for some time now. Today is the day. Today is the day. What better day could there be than the day we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead? Today is your day. Paul says it this way, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Call out to the Lord Jesus Christ right now in the very place where you sit. The confines of your own heart and mind. Jesus, I believe. I believe. Forgive my sin. I have violated your law, your commandment. I'm living in rebellion against you. I have made a mess of my life. I deserve condemnation. But I believe you died for me. And I believe that you rose from the dead and you have conquered both sin and death. And that when I believe, when, I've, when I come to you by faith, that I too can have the life of the age to come. I believe. 
Call out to Christ. Call out to Christ.